You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Good evening, everybody, or depending where you are, but in Europe, it's 10 p.m. Uh, good afternoon if you're in the U.S. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, February the 15th, 2022. This is Alf, the author of the Macro Compass speaking, and I'm joined today by Tony Greer, the founder of TG Macro and the editor of The Morning Navigator. How are you doing, Tony? Alf, my man, how are you doing today? Good, good, man. But have you seen these markets? Jeez. I mean, what's going on here? So it's de-escalation all over the place. Two days yeah. ago, it was, you know, Putin is going to invade Ukraine. Today is like, no, 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 the guy's not going to do that. So we're going to tank oil. We're going to tank a bit some commodities. We're also going to make yields higher and curves steeper. And we're going to make equity markets rip. Is that a fair summary of the day? I think we could close up shop right there, Alf. I mean, you covered <laughs> it all so beautifully. I mean, that, that's, that's everything we needed to touch on. All right, so we are done. Guys, uh, talk tomorrow. No, 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 we're not nice done. Weekend, everybody. <laughs> we're no. not done yet. Um, but um, I wanted first your opinion on something. There was, today there was an important macro print, uh, producer price index in the US. And sorry, I'm a broken record, but it again beat expectations on the upside. So even if you strip the more volatile components, if you, even if you look at month on month changes to try and not blur the picture with year on year and base effects and whatnot, even if you look at month-to-month core PPI, let's call it like that, it's higher and higher on a month-to-month basis. If I'm not mistaken, it's like 0.6 or 0.8%. So we're talking about robust numbers there. So what do you make of that, Tony? And do you think we are priced in peak hawkishness when it comes to bond market? Or can bond traders keep on chasing the Fed to deliver more? You know, that's really, I think that's the key point right there, Alf, right? It's not, it's not about the number or the, I don't even think it's even about the magnitude of inflation data that comes out now. As long as it's elevated for longer, we need to continue to, to understand how the market is going to react. Um, we may be at peak hawkishness in terms of the bond market. I'm just noticing, well, I've been noticing all day, two-year yields, if you just zero in on them, we've had two consecutive inside days in a row um, where the range is completely within the previous day's range. That's obviously a market that is kind of undecided at the moment. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out now how we're going to come out of this Russia-Ukraine de-escalation, right, that the market was perceiving at some level. I don't know that we got a lot of more clarity out of the president uh, just now who said that the um, He's still saying that Russia is in a threatening position, so I don't know really how this is going to go. But I think the, mar- the, the bond market is waiting for an excuse to rally again and back off rates, if I had to guess, right? I don't know. I don't have anything other than a gut where it would seem to me that this might be a situation where we finally have some kind of a flight to quality, maybe some we've already seen inflation data elevated type of effect where maybe yields can um, back off with a little bit of a treasury relief rally. But that's all I'm seeing. That's all I'm seeing right now in the treasury market. It feels like we're pricing in pretty much close to max hawkishness. At least we haven't gone far from where we spoke last week, right? 
Yeah, not much. And uh, I was laughing before because you're talking about geopolitics and markets being undecided. There was a tweet from uh, Raul uh, the other day who said, guys, I have the perfect recipe for you to trade geopolitical events where, you know, you don't have much insights. Just don't. Just yeah. don't. <laughs> that's that's advice. That was fun. That's definitely a good advice. You know, it's hard. It's hard to pick it apart right now. You know, Alf, if we look at the stock market right now, we, we're getting leadership from all the losers, right? And and not to sound rude, but we're getting leadership from, you know, four sectors today or five sectors besides the airlines, outside the airlines that are rallying, which are kind of flat on the year. We're getting leadership out of solar stocks, semiconductors, retail, social media, and internet. And they're all down between 5 and 15% on yeah. the year. So today's kind of rally doesn't give me a lot of recovery um, confidence. But it's at least something that, uh, you know, the market's negotiating. It's 200-day moving average in the S&P. So we'll see how it shakes out. Yeah, exactly. And coming back for a second to bond yields, uh, it's very important to understand what the market is actually trying to price in because we, we can talk about what the Fed will do. But bond markets are very forward-looking. They tend to price in things before they happen. That's the nature of the bond market. So at some point, we went to price almost seven hikes as the base case scenario for 2022. It was basically reasonably all you can price in at some point for this year. What matters is also what the market is pricing in for 23 and 24. And so interestingly, at some point we went to, I think, nine hikes priced in for the next two years. And then already then the bond market was starting to price the euro dollar curve to be inverted in 2024, which in layman terms means, you know, they get there and then they're done and they actually probably need to cut already. Today, though, on the other hand, you're seeing two year part of the yield curve being relatively undecided where to go, but the yield curve is steepening on the day. So again, this is such, this is a de-escalation day. This is where uh, basically uh, the positions that were prepared over the weekend especially to run into the Russia-Ukraine uh, long geopolitical weekend were built on, and today they're sort of unwound based on the news. So it's hard to actually say, based on today, we're going to extrapolate a macro trend here. We can talk about you and I can talk about, you know, what comes for the next few months. But from today, we shouldn't extrapolate much macro trends. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. Social media, Internet is doing very well. Uh, those are also the most beaten up stuff uh, year to day, year to date. So not easy to extrapolate the macro trend, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, Alfonso. I'm trying to see, you know, I'm trying to decide what, you know, what what is jumping out at me today. And I come away with gold. You know, we're talking about the de-escalation of the Ukraine-Russia story, or at least the narrative, how the market's perceiving it. Gold went on a beautiful run up to 1880. I know all the gold bugs get very excited. I'm not exactly in that group right now. But what's interesting to me is that we had an outside reversal day down in gold today, where we made a new high for the move at 1880 closing negative on the day. So that might be a little bit of a reversal there. The oil market still looks healthy to me, even though we're you know a couple of dollars off the highs, though, I would have imagined that with the de-escalation in the Ukraine that it could have backed off further. So I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised that oil hasn't backed off a few more dollars. So maybe that's a sign of the underlying strength, which really hasn't gone away, right? It's just another supply and demand story, low inventories and massive demand right now in the energy complex. So that I think is going to persist, but the the commodity complex looks okay. We were talking about iron ore, right? Right before uh, we got started, got smoked. <laughs> so the Chinese guys basically they have this central planning scheme, which us in west in the Western world are not very used to, 
they have this incredible power to redirect credit where they want it, top off the credit from where they want it, and also effectively have a much better direct price controls on certain commodities like iron ore. And so today they basically said, we just need it cheaper, guys. I'm sorry, but the producers <laughs> were, were, were becoming very bullish on this thing. I mean, we are, we're just not going to allow that. And the signaling effect is so strong, Tony. Yeah. It's iron ore price action the way it did today. What do you think of that? Yeah, the markets are very obedient to the Chinese headlines, aren't they? It's like they don't mess around at all. China says no speculating and hoarding in iron ore. Anybody that's long says, I got the message. I'm getting out right now. And so the price falls back into you know the lower end of the range of wherever it's been. So it's incredible how effective that they've been. Um, I'm surprised that they don't manage other commodities as forcefully. Maybe they don't have the same power as they do in a thin market like iron ore. But all in, it's incredible that they've had that effect. So I think that that kind of shakes up the metals complex a little bit today, right? Between iron ore pulling back, we have um, maybe a small bounce in copper and a big pullback in gold. So you know, the metals kind of nowhere today, and that contributes to the Bloomberg Commodities Index really not making much headway, but not backing much off the highs either. So to me, the commodity inflation is, is still very much intact. And I'm trying to still, like I said, I hate to go keep going back with it. But when the S&P is dangling around the 200-day moving average, I'm always trying to get a handle on which way it's going to break, because it's not going to break for just five handles. So I like to try to catch those moves. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Coming back to China for a second. So yeah. there are increasing headlines coming out and also a piece of data by now. I want our audience here at Real Vision to, to pay attention to that. Um, I run this metric, which is called credit impulse. And so it tends to look at how much credit is thrown in the real economy at any point in time, at which speed it's thrown. And China accounted historically for a very large portion of that. And then basically in 2020, 2021, they closed the taps. And so this credit impulse in China went down. And I'm now seeing the first very concrete signs they are turning the tap up. The January total social financing data, which is basically a proxy for the new amount of credit being created in China and, and lent to the real economy. That has basically big expectations from analysts by three standard deviations, three standard deviations. So this guy is basically surprised any consensus expectation to the upside by a large amount. Mm -hmm. And also the verbal indications they're giving to banks to lend to real estate de developers. They're going to bad debt managers and they're saying, guys, we're going to make it easy for you to support the sectors, especially the real estate developer sectors that have been hit the most. We are pumping credit. We are telling um, banks to extend credit. We are cutting benchmark rates. The PBOC had cut benchmark rates, expected to do it again throughout the year. It seems to me it's now pretty clear that the message from China is we want this engine, this credit engine to start all over again. Yeah. And while some analysts have noticed that, I don't think enough attention has been paid to that because China, the Chinese credit engine has been over the last decade, the strongest force of private sector demand all over the world. 
that also has an impact on commodities, but later throughout the year, end of 2022, beginning of 2023, should have an impact, a positive impact on the overall economy. What do you make? Are you following this data? What do you make? How does it change your, your, your commodities thesis, Tony? Well, I follow, I'm following you following this data. You know, I have, I have obviously half an eye on China, but I'm listening to uh, everything that you're saying about them getting the credit uh, band back together a little bit. It's definitely jives with the headlines that I've seen. Obviously, they just suffered an extreme pullback in their technology sector. I would imagine yeah. they're trying to make sure that, that they stem that slide while trying to control the speculation in commodities. And uh, you know what? While, like as you say, while while it is a really in-your-face exercise in central and financial planning, it tends to work. And and it's certainly something that that as a trader I would not be on the other side of. So for me, it's encouraging that as you know we come, you know, obviously out of lockdowns into a more cyclical or normal economy. You know, trying to find out where we're stretched to the limits and have to pull back from. Um, I think it's kind of encouraging to hear that story coming from China that they are, you know, trying to jumpstart the economy a little bit. It's positive for the global economy. It works for my natural resources trade. So, you know, that, that that's why it's uh, it, it's good to hear and also to hear that it's not something that I want to go and get at them a lot of my trades about or, or really uh, question them, but rather kind of reinforces a lot of what I'm thinking about the natural resources sector for the rest of the year. Alf. That's fair. Yeah. And what's relevant as well to notice is that this credit impulse getting through the economy then takes some time to actually manifest yeah. in soft data and hard data. It's not like we're going to do it today and then tomorrow you're going to see PMIs to the roof and then earnings through the roof. It takes some time for the private sector to put this newly created credit to work. So normally you need a lag. You, you see a lag of between six to 12 months, depending on what, which indicator you're looking at. But it's good to know for everybody that China the, the late, latest two data points in a row, plus the verbal intervention and communication from China, has been very clear that the direction we're taking is to extend more credit back to their domestic economy, which has been a large driver of aggregate demand with the lag, uh, historically speaking. Back to commodities, Tony. Yeah. Uh, oil. So crude oil is something that is on everybody's radar. On my radar, too, have been stopped out, by the way, for the record. Ouch, that hurt. Uh, but that's fair enough. Uh, that happens to everybody. Yeah. So oil has repriced down today pretty aggressively. But if I hear you enough, you're, you know, you're not really surprised by the repricing down. So um, are you in the camp, Tony, we're going to see a $100 barrel oil at the end of the day sooner or later? Or don't you have that price target? What's your midterm story for crude oil? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of, uh, I'm trying not to pick goalposts, you know, Alfonso, if that's fair, you know, I, I feel like the, the energy trade has been very much, you know, it, it has been very much staying focused on what ESG is doing to investment, mm -hmm. both in the US and around the world, because if you've been listening to OPEC and Saudi Arabia, you know, they've been making comments that are sort of like, you know, it's been harder for us to get more drills in the ground as well, right? That's why they're having trouble coming up with their excess capacity yeah. to manage the price. So I feel like the energy trade has been half keeping an eye on that, half keeping an eye on really the supply demand, actual, you know, the big picture data. We just had another set of really big inventory draws. I think it was 8 million barrels of liquid in total across gas. Um, WTI and distillates. So there was obviously some big tailwinds in the markets from there. 
And, you know, we keep going. It keeps to me, uh, Alf, the oil market keeps going from sort of one story frame to the next story frame. And as the story frames continue to develop and you kind of turn over what the next storyline is, it's incrementally bullish, right? And even though it's getting priced in and we're seeing a little bit more speculation, the curve is allowing for it. And it feels like oil prices can go overall higher. The next two or three dollars, I don't really want to quibble over. But but broadly speaking, I want to say that it feels right right now that this trend remains intact, if that's fair. Tony, something I want you to uh, unpack for our audience. The fact that you talk about the curve in oil makes me think about something I've been paying attention to, not only crude oil, but a bunch of commodities. Actually, if you take a, an index of 20 commodities, the most important in the world, their curve is almost all of them are in, in backwardation. That's technically um, defined backwardation. Can you explain what that is? Why is that important? Why do you talk about the steepness of the oil curve? What does that mean? Yes, it's very important, Alfonso, on two different levels. I think it's important to discuss a backward-dated curve. First, to understand that it is essentially the market pricing in tightness to the front end of the market, whereby everyone is kind of waiting for the last minute to buy their oil because the last the prices are going so high. So they're trying to sort of hold off on buying oil. What happens is it creates a tightness in the front of the curve where the back ends flatten out. Everybody buys front month in the last minute, and that's why the, the front end of the curve gets steeper. It is important to understand in terms of speculation, because as a speculator, you can buy the front month of WTI. For example, now I believe we're in March. And when you roll down the curve as the calendar turns, you're rolling into a cheaper WTI yes. price and picking up positive carry. So yes. that's why it's a positive um you know, it's a positive factor in the oil market because it makes speculators want to pile in at the same time when it gets overly speculated. You could imagine how too much length shows up in the front of the curve and then you'll have it sort of flatten out in relation to the back end of the curve. So what it is is essentially, um, you know, people filling their inventory needs at the last minute because price seems to be getting away and then it leads to more and more speculation in the markets. That, that's what happens. What happens in, now, there's one more factor, if I may. Sure. The whole entire calendar now has widened out, right? With, with each month being more and more backwardated uh, and the curve getting steeper, the whole calendar now has widened out to around $12, $13, which is usually yeah. a level that flat price backs off from. So we've seen this already uh, work its way through the oil markets around Thanksgiving when we saw that that pullback um, in risk. And now we're seeing it again. But it seems like oil, the, the market continues to get back on its feet after um, pulling back due to the calendar widening out. So that's why it's hard to get a handle on now. I don't think it's something that's going to change trend. It's just something that makes me concerned that there may be a pullback in flat price, if that's fair. And I don't think a steep one. I only think a couple of dollars to clear out a little bit of front month length. Yeah. So basically, the demand supply imbalance in the front end of the commodities contract is so imbalanced that people actually push front end uh, price is much higher. And that also, as Tony um, explained, basically encourages people to speculate by getting in into front-end contract because then they roll out into a cheaper contract 
next month and so on and so forth. What, yeah. you, uh, what you have also pointed out importantly is that if this backwardation historically becomes more than 10% of spot prices, if you go through calendar, you know, a year forward, and then it becomes this inversion, more than 10% of spot prices, historically tends to predict with a decent accuracy, some pullback in spot prices. This backwardation has now been around 8 to 10% for a while, and despite that, the oil market doesn't seem to be bothered at all. So as, as Tony explained, it seems to be some, uh, some more structural factors at play here, at least for the time being. These commodities, Tony, are all priced in dollars. That's the other thing which is interesting, because the dollar against other currencies, but also against gold, if you want to peg it against a hard asset, has been trading relatively well this year. And despite that, despite this inherent um, you know, dollar stability, not to call it dollar strength, but at least dollar stability, mm. commodities continue to go up in prices year to date. Do you find that that dollar um, stability against commodity strength a compelling factor in your analysis? Yeah, you have to always be conscious of that push and pull, right? The, the headwinds, tailwinds between the, the currency market and the, the commodity market. Um, and I would very, the way, that, the way that it's gone over time is that, you know, you want to be careful about being bullish commodities if you're also bullish the dollar. Yeah, right? that, that was something that you always had to be like, well, you know, priced in dollars, you have to be careful if the dollar goes up, obviously, the price of the commodity should go down, um, priced in dollars. But um, we've seen so much sort of supply demand side strength in the commodity markets, where, as you mentioned, you know, pretty much almost the entire basket of commodities is now in backwardation. So yeah. in, in more of a um, steeper curve, more um, a tighter market. So when the, the entire complex is like that, that's when you can have a year like we had last year in 2021, where the dollar index goes up 5% and the commodity index goes up 25%. You know, if we had had a year last year where the dollar was trading lower, or if we get to a year where the dollar has a big 5% pullback, I would imagine that's going to be an even bigger tailwind to the commodity complex. And you might see commodities pick up an extra 5 or 10% just based on dollar weakness. Because I would imagine that it did hold the commodity complex back having a strong year, but not back into negative territory. So that's kind of how I'm looking at the relationship. Well, let's call in uh, the let's call in basically a conversation that Brent Johnson, the utmost expert and the creator of the dollar milkshake theory, had on Real Vision with Alex Gurevich about the dollar. Because Brent had something to say about that. So let's let's listen to uh, to what he had to say. Brilliant. I ultimately think the dollar is going higher because I don't think anything's different this time, right? Think about everything that was thrown at the dollar over the last 24 months. They printed, quote unquote, printed $2 trillion, right? They dropped money from helicopters. You had a president that was actively accusing the, um, you know, the head of the Federal Reserve of, you know, mismanaging the dollar and he needed to lower the rates. We had a, we had a contested election. We had a number of people, quote unquote, storm the Capitol, Right. We've had all of this stuff that's happened that would absolutely should decrease confidence in the U.S. dollar. And yet the dollar today is exactly the same place it was at the beginning of 2020. Right. And so what I guess for those who the reason I don't think the dollar is going materially lower. And I first of all, can it go lower? It absolutely can go lower. This is not a guarantee. But my thinking is that 
what can they throw at the dollar over the next 12 months that they haven't thrown over at it over the last 24 months? Um, they can't just out of the blue print another $2 trillion. There has to be some crisis that allows them to do that. And if there's a crisis, I believe the dollar is going to go higher. The full conversation is available on the plus and pro tier on Real Vision, and Brent must be reading the Macro Compass. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I pointed out in of one of my articles. It, it was a provocation, but the title of the article is No, the dollar is not going to zero. So there is a lot of talk about dollars going to zero, but what, what does it exactly mean? It's always fun to me. Um, I agree with Brent in that clip, Tony, and I want to get your, your opinion too on the fact that uh, you know, the real money printers are the government and banks and government, especially when ballistic with fiscal deficits, producing literally usable dollars for citizens in, in, in uh, huge quantities in a very short period of time. But as Brian points out, and I'm going to print another two trillion dollars if CPI is at seven percent. It's it's not politically acceptable to do so. You need another crisis another strong one to react in a sharp way like we did in 2020. So obviously the, the, create, the pace of creation of the new, the, these new dollars was extremely strong during the pandemic, and it's now not that strong anymore on an impulse, on a new creation of dollars basis. And so obviously the dollar index against other currencies, but also against gold of late, has held uh, in, a decent, in a decent way. And the Federal Reserve also plays a role, obviously, by setting short-term real interest rates uh, or, or you know, influencing them. What do you make of, of you know, this, this connection between uh, fiscal deficits, the Fed, and the impact they both have on the dollar? Oh, well, I, I be honest with you, I try not to make too much of it in my own brain, Alf. I try to let the market <laughs> tell me what, what, what I should think. So I, would, I will say the only thing that, that, that I think I can add uh, that may be useful to this conversation is that I would have thought that, you know, with the dollar coming into like last year, for example, you know, coming down and coming into the year below 90, for example, and the dollar index with a lot of pressure on it, having come out of that year where we just doubled the Fed balance sheet, we ran up the deficit to enormous proportions, as you mentioned, um, I thought the dollar was done at that point. I thought we were going to go because, you know, economy the size of ours, adding that much debt I would have thought that we were going to be, you know, the the sort of the the, the ugliest. Um, how do you, what do you call it? You know, the, the the worst looking currency in the reverse beauty pageant. Right? I thought it was actually going to be the dollar. You know, as it turns out, despite the other economies being smaller and potentially being in worse shape economically, that doesn't necessarily shake their currency um, to, into being useless either. So you know. They, excuse me, into being degraded either. So the dollar comes back. So, you know, I just try to look at opportunities, Alf, where I think the dollar is going to accelerate one way or the other. And then I try to temper my commodity positions accordingly. Like if we're, if I think that we're going to be in for a period of really weak dollar based on a chart movement, I look around for commodities that I can add on for a short period of time to increase my risk there. And this, conversely, you know, if the dollar looks like it's going to break out and really has a lot of room on the upside to run, I'm probably going to make a sale or two in my commodity trade. And that's really the only way that I look at it off. I'm not smart enough to figure the dollar, uh, the whole dollar Rubik's Cube out. But look, I mean, the fun stuff, it's uh, what you just highlighted before. So people tend to look at how fast the U.S. increased their debt, both on a private and a public balance sheet during the pandemic. They always forget to look at the fact that everybody else 
did also large amounts of debt creation during that period. And also real interest rates, tradable real interest rates that were applied in America were very low. We went all the way to minus 2% at some point. But take the euro that represents, I think, 57% of DXY index. It's basically, I mean, DXY is euro dollar and euro yen for, uh, sorry, dollar yen for most of it. Also, real rates in Europe went to minus 1.5%. So it's always a relative story at the end of the day. So if the US does something, then what do you expect Europe to do? Yeah. At the end of the day, maybe it's it's slightly lower as an as an effort, slight, slightly less strong, but it's still an effort the same way. So the the narrative is one sided. Looking at what the U.S. does, you should look also at what the other jurisdictions are doing. That you know, we all live the, in a credit based monetary system, so we're we're all going to do the same at the end of the day uh, during this crisis. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's get some questions from the audience. What do you say, Tony? Right on. Let's go. Holy crap. Look at the first one. Question for Tony. What do you think of a three times leveraged ETF products for oil over a six month time frame? Ooh. Well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll give an answer, Alpha, and then I'd love for you to answer. I don't trade triple levered anything. It's just not an animal that I participate in. But I don't trade options either. My, my objectives are always to start out with a cash account. Uh, uh, trade cash positions and generate an excellent return at the end of every year. And, and that's the only way that I know how to do it without setting myself on fire. So I, I would consider triple levered options in the field of potentially setting yourself on fire. You may be right. You maybe have, have wider risk parameters than me. And in which case, that might be a trade for you. And that's the only way that I can explain that. What would you say, Alf? Okay, as a, as a former professional money manager of a 20 billion book, you can give me three times leverage, six times or 10 times leverage. The only thing I would be interested in is how many units of risk am I taking with my position? And so if the, 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 the underlying instrument is either more volatile or more levered up, and my appetite in that position is, let's say, X unit of risks, I will just reduce the size and use the same instrument such that the final outcome, the volatility that position is going to bring to your portfolio doesn't really change if I use a three times leverage or a non-levered instrument because I'm going to play around with the size I use in a highly levered position, which is going to be probably less than in a non-levered position. So you can play with leverage as long as you know what your risk parameters are and how do you need to adjust your drawdowns, volatility and the size of your positions. That's my simple answer. Absolutely. The other one is from, uh, oh, this, this is an interesting one. I really want your take because I tweeted something about it. Uh, does Tony have a view on Palladium? Have you ever seen Palladium, Alf? No, not really. No, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's actually like comes in a bucket and they're like pellets or like little tiny BBs. Yeah, that's the, that's the form Palladium comes in. So no, I, I don't trade something that I'm not that... Uh, that that isn't sort of uh, tangible enough to me. There aren't enough ways to for me to sort of confidently invest in the Palladium market. I'm sure that it's a trade that can work. I'm sure there are a hundred ways that you can play it. Um, 
sort of t tangentially, and I'm sure there might even be a decent ETF. I, I am bullish platinum group metals, mm -hmm. but that doesn't even mean that I express a view or a position in them. Just because I'm bullish, I see that they're going to be important to the green economy. They're going to be important to electric, electric vehicles. Um, they are also in sort of supply deficits just based on a 30,000 view of, the, of their uh, commodity curves. So to me, those look like trades are, that are going to work. They just aren't, they're not liquid enough and they're not, um, I don't have enough price discovery in Palladium or, or enough um, data to know what's really driving the day-to-day -day price. So that's, that's why I kind of tend to shy away from things like that and stick to, you know, copper, gold, corn, um, wheat, oil, natural gas, things that I have really, really tangible and immediate access to data points on, if that's fair. Utmost respect for you, Tony, because if there is something you don't trade or you don't have a view or you don't have enough visibility on the liquidity and you just don't trade it, it's very simple. I tweeted something fun, I think, about Palladium the other day that uh, got a lot of engagement because Russia alone is responsible for 46% of global of exports as a share of global production of palladium so and platinum as well that's 15 percent on top so basically as palladium and platinum are used in uh, exhaust pipe uh, pipes of the cars just made a joke like okay these guys are not going to export or are going to make it very expensive uh, and and the net zero emission target remains we all either get a Tesla or we all learn how to how to bike again otherwise we're going to have a problem <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> That's where the rubber meets the road, man. That's it. It's one or the other. And then uh, there is one more that I'd like to take um, from Adam. So it's it's a question for me. There is another one for you I want to ask you too. But the one for me is, Alf, at what point do we stop ourselves out of this long-duration bond trade and try again later, Adam is asking. Well, Adam, I don't know exactly what am I supposed to stop out on the 18th of January on Twitter, visible to everybody. I move the long 10-year treasuries to a flattener trade where I sell front-end bonds and I buy long-end bonds against those. So I don't care if yields go up or down, I just care if the curve flattens or steepens. And luckily for me, apparently the macro thesis was right and the curve has been flattening, so I have nothing to stop out. <laughs> luckily for me, I, I got out from the outright long at the right time and I turned it into a, a flattener trade. It's all available on Twitter. If you follow me on the macro compass, you will find all these trades open air, nothing to hide. The other question and the last one that I want to ask you, uh, Tony, from the audience is... Uh, Tony, do you have a thought on the recent action in the move index? So the bond volatility index, basically. Uh, well, I'm sure that volatility has picked up quite a bit. So let me just put this up on my screen here. Yeah, there's been a nice move north in bond volatility there, yeah. it looks like. Um, you know, I am not a master of the bond market. I try to allow the curve and yields to give me an indication on how, you know, I can trade sectors of the equity market. Um, you know, it seems to me, though, that this that that goes hand in hand with a total rate regime change. Right. I mean, I think that if we're going to go through this rate regime change where we're going to swing this pendulum back and forth this year between, oh, my God, we're going to hike rates eight times and then we're going to swing it back this year and it's going to say, at one point, we're going to be down to five rate hikes this year or four or three or whatever it is. So if that volatility, if that pendulum is going to of expectations 
is going to constantly swing back and forth. It makes sense to me that we're going to have to figure out how the bond market is going to shake out, and that would probably price in a little bit more volatility that it looks like the options market is pricing in. So I think that that could be it. Also, on the way down, right, if this is a treasury market on the way down, markets on the way down often pick up a bigger volatility premium than when they're rallying. So this may be something that the bond market volatility is telling us that the upside is challenged in treasuries right now or so, you know, give or take some kind of idea like that. But that's my read. I'd love to know what Alfonso thinks as a yeah. better bond trader than me. So basically implied volatility in the bond market can also be approached as a measure of risk premium. As the Federal Reserve has not been very clear on uh, which, uh, if they are willing to cut the right, right side of the distribution of future outcomes of their policy making, they've not been clear exactly where is the line in the sand. So then if you, if you have to price an implied volatility, you have to be a bit more conservative and demand a higher risk premium from that perspective because you, you just don't have enough guidance on future action and on future monetary policy and reaction function like you used to have it in the past. So it's just a natural move, I guess, that makes sense from so many aspects. But Tony, to close up, I heard the magic words. I heard them. You said regime change. So I, I always I always laugh about that because it's uh, since I started managing money I had to hear let me think about four to five uh, regime changes in the bond market. So in 2010 I remember it was that QE, it's money printing and so it's going to be a, a uber uber inflation. So rates have to go to 10 percent. 2013 it was the taper tantrum. Oh my God, the rates are going to go to five percent. Right. 2018 it was. Uh, you know, uh, we're going to hike above neutral rates. We're going to go to 5%, Jamie Dimon. 2021, 2022, this is the fourth regime changer here, where this time is going to be like a breakout, a booming economy. Of course, nobody knows, but it's just to point out that many of these uh, regime changes store in the secular uh, bond bull thesis have actually been defeated by uh, the strong uh, structural forces that are driving nominal yields to, to yield lower and lower over time. Absolutely true. And Alf, I only want to, and, and I, I, this is no argument with, with that view at all. This is just to contribute. Um, I, I've witnessed all of those, you know, failures of the rate change regimes. Every time it looks like we're going to say, okay, we're going to go March rates back up higher now. It never works out. Something bad always happens in the economy, right? So I, I'm not fighting that at all. The only thing that I would argue is different this time is that there is not an all-out war on fossil fuel and other commodity production. So whereas now, you know, if we hit a booming economy and we're still pivoting to ESG and there's still no oil, you know, in, in Cushing, yeah. we could see eight, 10, 11, $12 gasoline and that will cause the Fed to, you know, maybe stay uh, hawkish for longer or something like this. So that's the only factor that I can contribute that would make it any different at all this time. Tony, and look, this hits exactly in the right spot. I just tweeted a provocation thread on Twitter before this event where I said, this is my secular bond bullish thesis. The smart investors I know always tend to doubt from time to time their highest conviction macro thesis. So please challenge me. Mm -hmm. Those are the reasons why I'm long. Uh, structurally speaking, the bond market, where can I go wrong? And one of the points where I try to challenge myself was exactly what you're saying. The future outcome of inflation distributions has moved a bit to the right, but 
you know, this net zero emission story, this commodity inherent scarcity and the CAPEX cycle that is hampered by the ESG transitions. Right. Those are things that could change the picture that I have in mind. I invite people on Twitter to challenge me further if they have other ways to, to make me rethink my bond bullish thesis. Tony, it's always a pleasure to, uh, to have you here. Always nice to talk to somebody so open-minded and honest about things that he knows and he doesn't know. Alf, I learned something every time I talk with you about the markets. I can't thank you enough, my man. Ah, it's a pleasure. So thanks, everybody, for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ash Bennington will be back tomorrow with Darius Dale, so make sure you tune in again. And as always, the conversation continues on the exchange at Real Vision. Peace. See you guys. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.